This program deals with themes of an adult nature and is intended for a mature audience. The very word secrecy is repugnant in a free and open society. And we are, as a people, inherently and historically opposed to secret societies, to secret oaths, and to secret proceedings. Our differences worldwide would vanish if we were facing an alien threat from outside this world. We must guard against the military-industrial complex. You want answers? I think I'm entitled. You want answers? I want the truth! You can't handle the truth! The questions you always had. The answers you were never given. The place to seek the truth. Welcome to Veritas. Headline edition, July 8, 1947. The Army Air Forces has announced that a flying disc has been found and is now in the possession of the Army. I'm as mad as hell, and I'm not going to take this anymore! The power they took from the people will return to the people. The Matrix is everywhere. It is all around us. It is the world that has been pulled over your eyes to blind you from the truth. Shall I tell you what I find beautiful about you? You are in charge of the best when things are worse. Sooner or later, though, you always have to wake up. Be skeptical, but don't close your mind. Greetings to everyone around the world, and a warm welcome to another edition of Veritas at VeritasRadio.com. I'm your host, Mel Fabregas, and I sincerely thank you for joining me once again. And if this is your first time, please make yourself at home. To listen to part two of tonight's interview and all of our material going back to 2008, don't miss out and subscribe. It's very simple. All you have to do is click on the subscribe button of our website at veritasradio.com and you'll receive your login immediately. And have you listened to Sanitas Radio yet? Take a look at all the shows we've done so far and all the upcoming guests. You have no idea what these shows can do for you and your loved ones. You will never hear what they have to say in the mainstream media. I guarantee it. Remember, your greatest wealth is your health. Check it out at sanitasradio.com. And for MMS or our futuristic metal-cased USB drives with all our seasons and bonus material, go to the Veritas store. To get in touch with us, for member support, media inquiries, suggestions, you want to be a guest or are a whistleblower, click on the contact button of our website at veritasradio.com. Under the terms of the Freedom of Information Act, government agencies have declassified millions of pages of documents on numerous subjects. But there are other files, many of a far more intriguing nature than those the government has already released. They're the ones that agencies have not released. Tonight, we discuss For Nobody's Eyes Only, which picks the locks to the secret vaults. They, quote-unquote, they don't want any of us to see. And this is the newest book, 
from our Veritas veteran, full-time author and journalist, Nick Redfern. Hello, Nick, and welcome back to Veritas. Hey, Mel. Thanks for having me on the show again. My pleasure always. And Nick, let me start by reading a quote you include in your book by Napoleon Bonaparte, the first emperor of France. He says, history is a set of lies that people have agreed upon. Most people, probably excluding you, our audience, and, and I, have agreed to a written history. Why do most people agree without questioning it, Nick? Um, well, I think a, a lot of the time it's people, you know, when they watch the news or they, or they read something, they assume it's necessary. Not that, you know, it's not that it's a lie. It's just that very often it's not the full story or the full story of something hasn't been researched. So we have kind of like a distorted view. But people assume that what they're told on TV or whatever is a complete truth, you know, very often. And I think certainly more so than in the past, people, you know, just accept to a degree at least what they see as being the gospel truth when when it may not be. Um, and I think there's also the sort of disturbing trend where it seems a lot of today people just don't care. <laughs> you know, they're more interested in just reality TV and going to bed and getting up and, you know, and, you know, the society become very dumbed down to where people, it isn't so much that, you know, they don't listen, they don't watch, they just don't even care to, you know. I think it's a circus and bread. They have been provided the circus and bread, the sports, the reality TV, their gadgets. We think we're so advanced, but in reality, we're giving our, our, our thinking to somebody else. But I can't understand why a lot of information is kept top secret due to national security reasons. But but the secrecy goes beyond that. And I have to have come to the conclusion Nick, that the main catalyst to keep that secrecy is to keep the status quo, to prevent humanity from really moving forward. What's your take on that? Yeah, I mean, there's no doubt that I, I think there there is, well, I would say for sure, there are very good legitimate reasons why a lot of material and data is withheld. You know, for example, Nobody wants the North Koreans to know the extent to which our satellites or, you know, missile systems work or things like that. In the same way, we don't want the Chinese or the Russians to know. So I, I would say that a, a massive amount of material that is withheld is being withheld for the right reasons. Um, and But the, the things that interest me that I feel we should know about are are things, you know, some of the more, I will not say paranormal, but some of the more mysterious things where, like, for example, UFOs, Roswell, that kind of thing, where perhaps the justification may sort of be national security, but is it really a case of it's being withheld because of national security reasons or that there are people that just plain don't want us to know, which is a very different thing, you know? And I think that's the story. That's the excuse, national security, when in reality it could be because if we found out, we'll come to the realization that, you know, why are we flying tin cans for the last 100 years and still using, you know, diesel fuel to fly planes and have cars on the road when we could actually be using inverse or reverse gravity to fly. But let's talk about secrecy. What are the three levels of official secrecy in the USA and what, what do they mean? Well, yeah, I mean, this is one of the things that a lot of people aren't necessarily aware of, where you have this situation of differing levels of security. Now, 
you know, everybody sort of heard of top secret. And, you know, top secret is kind of like a term that gets banded around here, there, and just about everywhere, really. Um, but in reality, um, you know, it actually doesn't, it doesn't actually work like that. Um, for example, the reason why you have different levels of security is because some things actually aren't, um, you know, deemed to be necessarily top secret. That's why in the U.S. you have top secret, secret, and confidential. Now, of course, top secret is the stuff that could be, if it was released, would be sort of most damaging to the security of the nation. And, you know, that's the sort of stuff that I mentioned that, you know, we don't want our potential enemies to find out about secret information and confidential is still sort of significant material, but it's not deemed sort of gravely damaging, but it could still be damaging. And that's why you have sort of declassification teams in all the various agencies whose job it is to assess what should remain classified and what can potentially one day come up for declassification. What's uh, Executive Order 13526? What is it? Well, every year, sort of executive orders are sort of put into place by the presidents on on varying, um, you know, sort of degrees of uh, different issues related to government and what's being done and so forth. But uh, EO Executive uh, Order 13526 is essentially, well, it was passed in uh, December 2009 by President Obama. And it essentially is the latest and most up-to-date guidelines that deal with um, the way in which secrets are kept and how long the secrets can be kept and how long the files can be withheld for. And largely, these executive orders that have been put into place don't differ that much. Where they do differ is, say, for example, on um, uh, you know the period of time on one particular classification of document to be withheld might sort of go from 30 years to 25, or it might, might go up to 50, something like that. So in other words, it's sort of bureaucratic changes in the overall security system, if you like, and that's what 13526 is, sort of the, the most recent one. And then why do certain information remain withheld for 25 years? I and mean, for example, the Kennedy assassination, I hear that that one is sealed for 100 years. Is that true? Um, well, a lot of the files were sealed, but there's now been a push in more recent years to get them released. And um, But that's that still doesn't mean we've got everything. For example, the CIA has acknowledged it still has um, approximately 1,000 documents, but we're not sure how many pages are in each document. So there could be, you know, there's 50 pages in each document. That's 50,000 pages that still remains classified. Um, so, but one of the one of the main reasons why files... Uh, well, actually, there's several reasons why files continue to be withheld over long periods. One, for example, if there's somebody mentioned in the document who is still alive, like a, a retired agent of this agency or that agency, and the concern is that if the file is released and the person's name is in it, then, you know, they could be tracked down and somebody, you know, if they were in possession of highly classified secrets and a you know, a foreign agent could actually be sent out to find that person if their name was released in the file. So very often it's for obscure reasons like that that people don't necessarily think of. And also, um, I'm aware, like, for example, this is a different angle, but this is in Britain. I know that some UFO files were withheld, not because 
of the UFO aspect of the file, but because the file also discussed the sort of the um, the levels at which the British radar system could extend to in terms of tracking objects flying over the UK, and actually mentioned the the height level that they could track to, and that was a classified issue. So the file was classified not because of the UFO angle, but because of the fear that it would reveal again to potential enemy nations the ability how far the British radar system could extend. And of course, if they found that out, they could fly you know, 2,000 feet higher and completely avoid the radar. So, so again, it's little things like that you don't necessarily think of that often lead to a file becoming classified. I lost count of the many researchers who have filed FOIA, Freedom of Information Act, requests, only to be told they cannot provide the information. And that's even after 25 years. So speaking of FOIA, the Freedom of Information Act, let's discuss it. How did it come to be? When? by whom and for what reason? Well, basically, the, the entire thing with freedom of information is that in, in varying degrees, before the legislation was passed in the 1960s, there have been varying degrees of freedom of information where agencies have sometimes just released information anyway, or they placed it in like the National Archives and people could go and see it. But that was pretty much sort of low-level stuff. But it was really... Up until 1966, when freedom of information uh, legislation really began in earnest, it was very difficult um, to actually get hold of things like, um, you know, classified or previously classified materials. But the Freedom of Information Act was designed to allow members of the general public um, and, and you know, uh, journalists and authors, etc., access to government files if they were deemed releasable. And it was chiefly designed to sort of provide some openness to governments. And, um, and it's actually worked very well. People think, you know, that the, the FOIA doesn't work or that material's always withheld. That actually isn't true. Uh, for example, the FBI has got a really good website called The Vault, which I think contains probably millions of pages of yes. formally classified documents, if not certainly in the high hundreds and hundreds of thousands. And it covers... Uh, pretty much the entirety of the amount of work we can see from the FBI that isn't still classified. And it covers the 1930s to the present day, and it's filled with things like their investigations of gangsters, Russian spies, um, attempts to sort of you know penetrate the U.S. security system by foreign nations, uh, famous actors and actresses, um, also, the the uh, reds under the beds era, that kind of thing, and, and so in other words, they've done a really good job of releasing all this material, and you can download it in PDF. So, in other words, the Freedom of Information Act does work well, but it's on certain specific um, issues, if you like, that very often files are withheld rather than being withheld, you know, across the board on everything. I remember April of 2011 when the FBI unleashed a. The vault. I remember how many emails I received from people saying, Mel, this closure is happening. And I said, hold on, don't, don't take it to the back yet. I mean, how accurate is the information presented there? Is it truth mixed with misinformation and disinformation? No, I don't think it is because, you know, a lot of people don't realize you can go to the National Archives and various archives and, and hold the original papers. You know, it's not like these are documents that you can only see in PDF 
Um, and of course, the, the reason why I don't think it's disinformation is because many of the files are recent files. So in other words, it's not like the people who are mentioned in them are no longer alive. You know, they're able to, you can get your own file. Um, for example, there are files on people like recent releases include Steve Jobs and Michael Jackson. You know, if those files contain disinformation, family members would be saying, hey, this isn't true. And why has this been, you know, why is this person's background or bio been altered? So, no, I don't, I don't think any of the files are disinformation because if, you know, the the easiest thing to do is if you don't want to tell people what's going on is not to provide fake files, but just not release the originals and and say, sorry, you At can't all. see them, you know. Yep. That makes more sense than getting yourself into like a big, deep mess by faking things. So UFOs, aliens, and cosmic conspiracies. So let's start with Roswell. I've heard so many versions of the story. What do you think really happened in Roswell in 1947? Well, uh, first thing is what I don't think happened is I don't think just a weather balloon came down. I don't think it was crash test dummies. Oh, no. no. Um, or anything like that. Although what I do think is that having read the reports extensively that the Air Force put out, I, I'm, I actually don't believe the Air Force are the bad guys in this. I think the reason why the Roswell secret is so well hidden is because it actually isn't being hidden by the acknowledged existing agencies. I think it's sort of hidden by a shadow type agency that's kind of black budgeted, that doesn't even officially exist. And I think if you read fully and carefully the Air Force reports, in my opinion, I think they were genuinely honest attempts to get to the bottom of what happened at Roswell. But their explanations didn't hold water when you when you read them properly. But I don't think it was the part. I don't think the Air Force was lying or trying to hide the truth. I think they were. I think today's Air Force has no more knowledge of what happened at Roswell than we do today, because I think it's hidden so deeply by an unacknowledged group that, as I said, like black budgeted and isn't acknowledged to exist, isn't um, overseen by Congress, congressional oversight or whatever. And so. You know, everybody else is as much in the dark as we are. But what's interesting is that when the Air Force went looking for files, because what happened was that in 1993, the U.S. congressman for New Mexico, Stephen Schiff, um, he uh, basically approached what at the time was called the General Accounting Office, but today it's called the Government Accountability Office, to look into Roswell. And the GAO is a very powerful agency that can go knocking on doors of pretty much any agency and say, hey, we want to see your files on this or that, etc. And when they went knocking on the door of the Air Force, and the Air Force said, yeah, we'll do a search for you, the Air Force came back and said, well, we didn't find any files on the Roswell event itself, but what we found were that all the files from the Roswell base, from 45 to 50, all the outgoing messages had just vanished. They just cannot be found today anywhere. And there's no clear indication of how or why the files vanished and who ordered the, you know, whether somebody ordered them to be destroyed or pulled or, or whatever. We just don't know. And so that, that's another reason why I do think there's a cover-up, but why I don't think the Air Force was responsible for it, because it was the Air Force who actually pointed out that all the files were gone. And I think if they were part of this cover-up, the last thing they would have done is to let everybody know that somebody had pulled all the files from that period. So that, but the mere fact that all the outgoing files from the base from 45 to 50 have vanished, that tells me that probably 
somewhere in all that pulled material were certain documents on the case. And I think to ensure that nothing got left behind or got, re- got put in the wrong filing cabinet or whatever, I think whoever took the files played it safe by pulling everything from 45 to 50, in other words, two or three years either side of the event, just to make sure nothing got left behind. I'll come back to Schiff for a second. But, you know, the, the notion that supposedly it was dummies, test dummies, if the dummy drops didn't begin until 1954, has anybody questioned the Air Force on that fact? Yes, they have. And the Air Force came up with um, what they call time compression, where they said that they didn't dispute that the people saw bodies or saw, you know, humanoid forms. But they said that they saw crash test dummies. And when it was pointed out that the crash test dummy experiments weren't actually begun until the early 50s, they said, well, we think the people who saw these dummies got the year wrong when they thought it was 47, <laughs> but it was actually 53 or 54. That, that's their official statements. And, and again, I don't think, for me, for me at least, as I said, I don't think the Air Force was creating a fake story and hiding something. I think they went looking and they were baffled that, that credible military people were talking about seeing bodies and they struggled to try and find an explanation. And the, and the crash test dummy angle was the best one they, they could come up with. But it was flawed because of this date issue and that actually made even the mainstream media question as to what was going on. And and it made people think the Air Force was covering it up. But I think, you know, if it was a cover-up, it would have been handled far better and it wouldn't have collapsed so quickly. So that's why I think, you know, the Air Force genuinely was sitting around saying to themselves, well, you know, our guys did see something, but we don't want to call them liars because they clearly weren't, they clearly saw something. So we better try and come up with some explanation. And I think really... The crash test dummy is probably the only one because, as I said, whoever knows the truth of Roswell, it's not the Air Force, you know. I mean, that's, that's my opinion, at least. No, it does make sense. And, and, you know, Schiff obviously got the runaround. The files got, became abducted, if you will. It happens all the time. There are congressmen that I know who have gone to the Pentagon to question that we have, and this is unrelated to your book, of course, but just the same point, that there are prisoners, of Vietnam prisoners still being held captive in that area of the world. And they're basically told that they cannot investigate or they cannot you know, provide the information. So the question is, if the Department of Defense cannot provide this information, obviously there's a more powerful authority behind them that's giving them direction. Yeah, and I think that's kind of like that with the with the Air Force. I'm not sure that this whoever's hiding the Roswell information is giving the Air Force direction. I think they may not be saying anything to anybody. They may just be sitting on the information totally safe in the knowledge that no one can access it. I mean, if you imagine... The, the scenario that I think is probably the correct one, although I could, of course, be wrong, I think the scenario that's probably correct is that the number of people who actually know the truth of Roswell is probably very small. And if you think about it, if Roswell involves, you know, sort of a craft that broke up in the skies or exploded on impact, and so you've got, you know, a, a lot of debris and you've got maybe four or five bodies, well, that's all you've got. So it wouldn't take much space, really, to store all that information and materials underground you know say for example where you've got five bodies in cryogenic cylinders you know just preserved and you've got 
say, a room 100 feet by 50 feet full of debris and, say, 10 or 15 filing cabinets full of all the papers and the autopsy reports going back to the 50s and the 40s, if you've got a few guard, you know, guys on the door guarding the place and it's 50 feet underground in a secure, secure chamber, 100 feet by 100 feet, and it's all there and nobody has access to it beyond the team members, which might be, you know, barely 100 people to keep the secret secure, then I can understand how it would be very easy to hide the facts from everyone who isn't cleared to know. You know, it's not like something where we're talking about an event that everybody and his brother in government knows about. Yes, everybody and his brother may have heard of it. I doubt there's anybody in the government or the military that hasn't heard of the Roswell case. But that's very different to actually having access to the material. And so that's why, again, I think... I don't believe the government or the Air Force or anybody in the military are the bad guys when it comes to Roswell. I I really do think it comes down to they just don't know because all the material evidence was siphoned off probably decades ago and passed over to this clandestine group that is is almost like a government within a government or an agency within an agency. You know, it's just, as I said, totally unanswerable or even unacknowledged. Yeah, the worst that uh, Senator, the late Senator Inouyes had uh, had its own Navy, its own Army, etc. But Colonel, the late Colonel Philip J. Corso, he wrote a day after Roswell. But at the time of his death in 1998, he was planning a follow-up book titled The Day After Dallas. He claimed he, he would have revealed the truth about the JFK assassination. Could he have been implying that Kennedy's death was attributed, at least in part, to the alien reality? Well, he might have been. We'll never really know. But I mean, the reason why I say he he might have been is because there actually are more than a few weird connections between the Kennedy assassination um, and the UFO subject. And of course, um, Corso was somebody who wrote about the Roswell event. A lot of people don't know, though. One thing they don't know is that he was also a special investigator for Senator Richard Russell, who was one of the Warren Commission members that looked into the death of JFK. So you kind of have an already existing kind of linkage between Corso and the Kennedy assassination anyway. Not that he was involved, but because he worked for Senator Russell, who was one of the commission members. And I I forgot the name, uh, JFK's mentor, uh, the former Secretary of Defense, uh, the one who allegedly committed suicide. You know who I'm talking about. Oh, you mean uh, Forrestal? Forrestal, James Forrestal. Um, He took him to to Germany after the war was over, and apparently they could have seen some uh, exotic technology. So do you think Forrestal may have given Kennedy some information about the the UFO and perhaps the exotic technology? Uh, technology that the Nazis had? Um, I'm not really sure. I mean, because don't forget, Kennedy, um, Forrestal killed himself in 49. And of course, the Kennedy assassination wasn't until 63. Right. So, you know, back in 49, Kennedy wasn't, you know, um, president or even, you know, sort of on the board. This was 14 years earlier. So I doubt he would have been given access then to sort of level material. But certainly when he became president, I think like a lot of presidents, they're briefed on certain portions of the of the program. You know, whether they get to see everything, that's a different matter. But uh, I wouldn't be surprised if he got to see quite a bit. And of course, there are a lot of rumors that he wanted to tell the public and, and also share the information with the Russians. That's one of the longstanding stories. And, and the reason why actually makes sense that he apparently just wanted to tell the Russians, hey, 
you know, aliens are visiting, it was because there were concerns that both sides were having trouble differentiating between genuine UFOs and what could be like a sneak first strike by the other side. You know, they couldn't tell necessarily the difference between a high-flying missile flying at a very fast speed and a genuine UFO. The radar systems weren't good enough then to differentiate. So the fear was a nuclear war could actually begin mistakenly if like a squadron of UFOs flew towards Russia from the United States. It would be, inter or it could potentially be interpreted as you know, a sneak attack. And so that was allegedly Kennedy's concern was not just to tell them, hey, UFOs exist, but to share data to avoid like a triggering a war off by mistake. And Forrestal, of course, allegedly, allegedly committed suicide. I think uh, somebody interviewed one of the, the uh, persons who worked at the hospital who told the uh, uh, Forrestal's uh, uh, relative, said, hey, he did not commit suicide, but that's a different story. Now, fast forward to 1980, I believe, the Rendlesham Forest incident. I know most of our listeners know about it, but we don't have to go over it in detail. But one aspect I didn't know was that at the height of that encounter, the British government became panicked and was on the verge of evacuating a number of nearby prisons. Tell us more. That's interesting. Yeah, sure. Well, just to sort of give a very brief oversight, uh, excuse me, overview, um, Rendlesham Forest, the case itself, sort of December the 26th to the 28th, 1980, um, and there were sort of multiple UFO encounters in and around Rendlesham Forest, um, everything from strange light scene to a weird triangular-shaped craft, even reports of small beings flitting in and out the woods. So clearly there was a, a profound series of events, and... A number of researchers, one of them particularly being the, the late Georgina Bruni, who wrote a book called You Can't Tell the People, um, she began digging not just into the case, but to what else was going on in the area at the time. And one of the things that she uncovered was that no less than three prisons in the area were primed for evacuation. Two were regular prisons, and another one was like a young offenders centre. Um, and the one of the ones that became the focus of most of the attention was a place called High Point Prison. And in the early 2000s, a man named Lord Hill Norton, who was a former chief of the British Defence Staff in the early 70s, he developed um, a deep interest in the Rendlesham case. And when he read Georgina's book, he approached the government, because by this time he was long retired, and he approached the government and said well, there's this allegation that High Point Prison was going to be evacuated for something to do with the events in Randleton Forest, and I'd, and I'd like to know what it was. And so, kind of grudgingly, they did a search for all the various governor logbooks uh, log from High Point Prison throughout the years. What they found was that all of them were there, except for the one that covered December 1980, which was gone. And presumably, if the governor had recorded details of this planned evacuation, that is the exact journal it would have been in, and, and it cannot be found. And and that's not hearsay or, you know, just rumour. That was the official response to Lord Hill Norton. We went looking, and the document has vanished. And, and it's kind of like, it parallels the Roswell event very much in the sense that it's almost as if a powerful agency within an agency moved in and in shadowy fashion 
got the material and then vanished as as weirdly as they first appeared. And um, and again, it kind of sounds so, like somebody who has the ability and the you know the clout, so to speak, to actually pretty much go where it wants to go, and you know is unstoppable. Do you think that same organization that appears in in, in Britain? appears in the United States and perhaps around the world is the same? You know, I actually do. I kind of wonder sometimes if, uh, you know, as I said with the Air Force, I, I really don't paint them the bad guys any more than I do the British Ministry of Defense with Rendlesham. There's clear evidence that the files have been sort of pulled and that the people who are in the jobs today, 30, 40 years later, and no more than now. And I kind of liken it to like a an unofficial group that has strands and tentacles all around the world that doesn't really exist. And these people, the members, probably have sort of regular jobs, but they also have like a, or their regular job is kind of a cover story for whatever else they're involved in. And so they have tentacles and, you know, strands all around the planet. And in essence, kind of like an ancient secret society modernized for the present day. That's how I actually view this group. And one that can, you know, has people in the British Ministry of Defence and perhaps some in the Kremlin and some in the Australian government and so on. And when something needs to be done, somebody picks up a phone, makes a call to the relevant person in this country or that country. Hey, you know, we need to get this material on whatever the subject is. And they have the ability and the means to do it and without leaving any tracks behind, I think. And the purpose of... of relocating the inmates from those prisons, what was it? They didn't want the, the inmates to see the lights? Well, I mean, I've, I've thought about this a lot, but you know, if it was just that, I, I don't think that would necessarily be enough. But there is another aspect to the story that I talk about in the book, and again, that seems to focus around missing files and also around a question that Lord Hill Norton raised. Now, there were a lot of rumors that Georgina Bruni also uncovered suggesting that one particular agency of government that played a deep role in the Rendlesham case um, was a place called Porton Down. And Porton Down is situated in the English county of Wiltshire. And Porton Down is where the British government does all its uh, research into things like chemical warfare, bio-warfare, and things like that, and vi exotic viruses, you know, that can be militarized. And so one of the theories is, what if whatever this UFO was, that it it left or contaminated a part of the forest with some sort of biological agent or a chemical agent that, you know, could be extremely lethal. And and the reason why that's a possibility is because another story Georgina uncovered, actually from somebody who'd written extensively about the history of Porton Down, um, was that on the day after the final incident, excuse me, after the first incident, a team in, from Porton Down, dressed in full hazmat suits, went out into the forest and recovered something, and it was loaded aboard um, a military transporter plane and flown out of the area. So I kind of think that if there was a fear or a concern on the part of the government at the time that some sort of, you know, deadly agent had been released into the woods and there was a fear of it spreading, that might have been something that could potentially have prompted the evacuation alert. Um, because I can't really think of anything that, unless something that could contaminate the countryside for 20, 30 miles, that's sort of a viable uh, sort of... Um, 
proponent, if you like, for what might have been the cause. But when we find out that there is this story of porting down personnel going out in hazmat suits, then I think that is possibly on the right track for, you know, whatever it was that happened. And now let's talk about a gentleman, Wilhelm Reich, and his alleged discovery of a strange and eerie life force, Orgon. A lot of our listeners know what it is, but he believed that Orgon was the power source of the many UFOs that were seen soaring across the skies of the USA from the late 1940s onward. Uh, for those who don't know, what is Orgon and what is deadly organ radiation that he studied? Mm. Well, this sort of goes back um, a long time when... Um when Wilhelm Reich started his research, he was actually born just a couple of years before the start of the 20th century. So we're talking about you know, sort of very um, old story, if you like, in terms of its origins. But essentially, orgone, you had sort of what was called DOR, which was deadly orgone radiation. And then you had OR, which was orgone red, um, radiation. And he believed that it was kind of like a... Um, like a, a, a universal energy is probably the best way to describe it. Um, but that was contained in every living creature on the planet or the universe, you know, not just people, but we all contain this sort of primordial energy, which I guess in some respects you could almost kind of suggest it was sort of linked to the human soul in some respects, something along those lines. But he also believed that UFOs, themselves didn't weren't actually powered by you know sort of sophisticated rockets or anti-gravity engines or anything like that he believed they were actually powered by orgone so in other words they weren't just alien craft they were like really alien you know so so different to anything we could potentially envisage that they literally powered their craft on this primordial energy and um reich invented this device called a cloud buster which was essentially like like a machine gun that he would load onto the back of a truck and aim it at the skies. And um, he said he claimed that he could sort of um, direct uh, the the positive form of orgone to destroy UFOs by actually destroying the deadly orgone radiation. So in other words, he was perceived himself as someone doing battle with extraterrestrial craft by using the one type of orgone against another. In other words, bullets and missiles were no good at trying to bring UFOs down. You had to destroy the power source. And, and what's interesting is that um, on one occasion in the early 50s, um, Reich actually traveled through Roswell, New Mexico, and claimed that as he approached the town, he was sort of enveloped in a massive amount of deadly orgone radiation. And of course, this was long after the initial flurry of excitement about Roswell in 47 had long died down, but also long before anybody else like Stan Friedman and Bill Moore were looking into Roswell in the late 70s. So it's interesting in this limbo period of the early 50s that Reich was actually making a link between Roswell and UFOs. Do you think that weapon is still being used today? Well, it could be. I mean, it, the, the big problem is not so much the concept of the weapon, but it's still shrouded in like a lot of secrecy. Not sec official secrecy, but secrecy in the sense that we just don't really know what Orgone was. It's almost like this theoretical energy. So although the story is kind of simplistic, the complexities of trying to, you know, answer the question of is it still being used, it's difficult to say because we really don't, know what it is or what it was you know we've just got sort of a vague outline from Reich himself um 
So, but I mean, you know, if somebody's researched his work at an official level, then ideally, I guess, from their perspective, sort of back engineering it or trying to create their own version to bring down UFOs would be an ideal approach to take, you know. Whatever happened uh, with Reich, how did he end up? Well, um, he, he didn't actually end up very, very right. well at all. Um, what happened was that... Um, in 1956, he was actually um, jailed and tried uh, in court. It was actually on a number of charges. One was fraud and the, and the other one was um, inter, interstate commerce, uh, commerce charges. And as a result, he was jailed and um, all his books were basically relegated to a furnace and destroyed. And, uh, and he died in a prison in Pennsylvania in, um, in the latter part of 1957. And uh, he felt that essentially he'd been, you know, he was like the fall guy and that um, he was being portrayed as the bad guy, in other words. But he felt that somebody on the inside knew about the things he'd uncovered and it was essentially their way of, of shutting him up was to, you know, lock him behind bars. Sure, it happened usually that way or they sent, they're sent to a, a psychiatric institution. I forget what's the name. Uh, Paul Benowitz, you probably know the story that Greg Bishop covered about him, right? Yeah. Same thing, you know, sent him to a psychiatric institution. Then people just question the story just because they went to jail or they are mentally unstable. Well, yeah, with, we, and, and with Reich, um, I, I think it wasn't so much he was unstable. It was just more the case that he was touching on some significant and, and controversial areas. And I think they, from my perspective, they were areas that somebody else knew about. And it was the best way, I guess, to sort of to take him off the radar, so to speak, in terms of having public visibility and, and doing what he was doing. Now. 1976, a UFO over Iran. Tell us more about this. A very interesting story. Yeah, this is a, a fascinating story. It's one of the most credible UFO cases around, and uh, it relates to the Iranian Air Force, which at the time was, you know, Iran was quite friendly with the US to the extent where the US sold a bunch of aircraft, um, specifically Phantom fighter jets um, to the Iranian Air Force for them to use um, you know, against their potential enemies. And the story is that on one particular night in 1976, um, a pilot of a, of a Phantom aircraft reported seeing this bright light in the sky and pursued it, and it was clearly under some sort of intelligent control, but it was very bright. Essentially, all you could see was like a, imagine like a camera flash that never goes off. It was sort of that, that bright. Uh, sort of huge intensity, but it was un obviously under intelligent control because it responded when the pilot accelerated towards it, and it also responded when the pilot attempted la to launch his missiles at the object by actually disabling the entire weapon system and the electrical system of the aircraft briefly, which could have proved catastrophic, but fortunately um, it didn't last long enough other than to sort of give the pilot a warning, and he broke off from the attack. Now, the reason I include this story in the book is because not only is it a very credible one, but a couple of files are now in the public domain, which it only amounts to about 10 pages, but they tell the entire story. But the reason I include it in the book is because there's also 
a story about missing files in relation to this particular case. And uh, a couple of researchers, um, Larry Fawcett and Barry Greenwood, um, in the 1980s pursued this case quite vigorously through the Freedom of Information Act and learned from one of their sources while they were doing the research that there was, there was actually a file on the case supposedly more than an inch thick. Now, that one has never, ever surfaced. All we've got are these brief, scant, raw intelligence documents as i said it was about five six seven eight pages something like that but this thicker file almost 40 years later that's still not surfaced at all this is the parvis uh, parvis uh, jafari story isn't it yeah that's the one yes it's and it's a it's a fascinating story because you've got a highly credible trained pilot you've got official documents and an acknowledgement that the event occurred and also proof that the weapon system was shut down. So, you know, clearly we're dealing with a, a profound event having some sort of bearing on national security, at least. Now, in 2011, and whenever I hear of a country that loses money or loses files or loses the, ta- the moon landing tapes, I laugh. In this case, 2011, Australia announced that it lost, quote-unquote, lost its UFO files. What happened there? Well, yeah, I mean, this is kind of one of those stories that, you know, you, you almost couldn't make it up. But what happened was that in in uh, midway through 2011, um, Australia's Sydney Morning Herald newspaper um, made an approach to the U.S., excuse me, to the Australian Department of Defence to have their remaining UFO files released, put into the public domain, those that hadn't already been released. And there were a few pages, not a massive amount, but a a fairly significant number had been previously released. But the newspaper said, you know, we want to see everything. And they'd learned of various cases that apparently had been investigated. And so when the Department of Defense did a search, what they actually found was that all of its UFO files were just gone. And by gone, I don't mean, you know, there was a slip of paper saying they'd been pulled or they'd been burned or destroyed because they were lacking in any public interest or dif- or intelligence interest. They just weren't there. And um, this actually sort of went up the chain of command um, through the National Archives and what was called the Defence Record Management System and right to the headquarters of Air Command. And nobody could find these files anywhere. And three years later, that's still the case, that the files have not been found. Um, nor, were there, is there, nor was like a destruction order or anything like that. It, and it's kind of like, again, just like the Roswell files and the Rendlesham files, that they're just not there where they should be. And again, it sort of begs the question, how is it that nations thousands of miles apart can lose UFO files under what are pretty much identical circumstances. And we'll discuss in a few minutes uh, Pine Gap, right in the middle of Australia. And it's, I believe it's 50-50% controlled by the Australian government and the US, but we'll talk about it in a minute. Now, the invention of an alien invasion. This is something I've heard for quite some time. I remember my conversation with Dr. Carol Rosson, allegedly... Dr. Verna von Braun told her that the last card would be an alien invasion. But what you have in the book precedes this from 1955 and the story of Kenneth Goff. What can you tell us? 
Yeah, this is a guy who probably a lot of people aren't aware of, Kenneth Goff. Now, um, he, Kenneth Goff was a very interesting but kind of strange character as well. And he had his sort of finger in numerous pies in the late 40s and 50s. But he essentially was an evangelist preacher. And he was also a former communist. He, he he openly supported communism in the 40s, and then in the 50s went on a, you know a nationwide tirade against communism, and giving lectures on you know the, the threat posed, you know, the very real threat posed by the Soviets back then. And um, but there were a lot of suspicions in the official world that what um, Goff was trying to do that he was still into communism. He was trying to recruit people under the guise of being anti-communist. In other words, he would try and, you know, people would come along to his lectures and so on, and then afterwards, you know, they would have drinks and dinner, and he would try and try and determine if they were actually open enough or, or could be manipulated to come round to the communist point of view. In other words, it was like an ingenious recruitment program. But as well as um, spending a lot of his time... Um, spouting on about communism and regardless of whether he was sort of a you know a double double agent or whatever we don't really know we probably never will but one of his other issues that fascinated him was ufos and given the fact that you know this is long before all the sort of today's rumors about things like project blue beam and plans to fake an alien invasion uh, kenneth goff was actually talking about this way back in the mid-1950s and um, he actually came to believe that there were people in various governments all around the world working together, kind of like what today we might call a new world order, to fake like a, a UFO invasion. In other words, they would build sophisticated looking craft and, you know, stage a few events and make it look like we were under attack from aliens. And that would sort of instigate as Goff perceived it as like um, martial law and the creation of a new world order where everybody has to, you know, obey the rules because we're under attack and we're in a state of war with, you know, aliens from another world, enemies from another planet. And um, now, of course, as I said, we hear a lot about this today. But if you think about it, mid-1950s, 53, 54, 55, this was sort of really groundbreaking for that period for somebody to come up with this scenario and also the scenario of like a new world order where it wasn't the government or this government, but it was strands of high powered people who could manipulate agencies and, and government leaders. He said those are the people who were doing it. So it kind of sounds like in retrospect that he really was onto some solid information. Um, and he, he's a really enigmatic character because he was also tied in with L. Ron Hubbard and the Church of Scientology. And um, he had files opened on him. He was also warning about the perils of fluoride and all sorts of different stuff. And um, so in that sense, you know, very, very intriguing and enigmatic character. I never thought that I would read a title, Flying Saucers, next to the word fluoride. What's the connection here? <laughs> well, the, the only connection from the perspective of Kenneth Goff was that he was warning about both. He was saying two things. One, that this sort of quasi-official group was going to try and fake a UFO evasion. But he said the other thing that was going on at the same time, from his perspective as he saw it, was that fluoride was being added to the water to try and create like a lethargic 
civilization or population which could be even more easily manipulated when they decided to create this ruse of an invasion. Um, so he, he, there wasn't actually a direct tie where between UFOs and fluoride. It was, as he saw it, the tools that this group was using to control and manipulate the population. As you say, it's, it's very impressive that this is 1953 when he was talking about fluoride. It wasn't fashionable as it is today to talk about that and UFOs, flying saucers back then. But what... No, you're right. Go ahead. Yeah, I was just going to say that that's one of the things I find fascinating about Goff is that regardless of whether or not, you know, people believe his views on things like a staged alien invasion, New World Order and fluoride and all this, one of the things we can say for sure, he was absolutely decades ahead of the people who sort of started talking about this more in the 80s and the 90s with things like Project Blue Beam and stage UFO invasions and New World Order. He was talking about this like 60 years ago. So that's what makes me take a deep interest in the guy because somehow or other, he seemed to be able to sort of almost predict what we would be talking about today in a very almost identical fashion. And people at that time, if they heard that, they probably thought this guy needs some, some medication. But obviously to some people, his information was important enough that the CIA actually are withholding it in total for national security reasons. Why do you think that is? Well, I think, I mean, certainly files were opened on him by a number of agencies, and some of those files have now been declassified. I, I mean, to, get, uh, to give you actually uh, an example of how files um, sometimes get mistakenly released and pulled and put in the wrong files, like I talked about with Roswell, there's actually one page of the Kenneth Goff file Um, is actually contained in the FBI's file on Frank Sinatra. Oh, really? Of all things. He got, he got put in the wrong <laughs> file by mistake at some point. So if you, if you plow through the entire several thousand page now declassified file on Frank Sinatra, you'll find the Kenneth Goff material, or some of it. But I think that somebody wanted him watched because he was touching upon controversial areas and he was doing so quite vocally and publicly. One of the big things he, he would do would sort of stand out in the town square or the city square, you know, wherever, and suddenly get on top of a box and start going on about carbonism or flying saucers. Um, and so, he, you know, he, he attracted a lot of attention and also at an official level. So I think there are probably multiple people and players watching him, possibly for very different reasons. I mean, you know, the FBI angle was primarily because, um, you know, he, he was talking about communism, but There was this big question, you know, is he actually still a communist, maybe? And um, But others may have been watching him because of they wanted to know how he got onto this story about staged UFO invasions and that kind of thing. So I don't think it was just one thing. I think Agency A may not have known Agency B was looking, and they may have not even known that Agency C had any involvement at all, you know. And we'll discuss uh, mind control and MK Ultra later, but I just, in reading the book, uh, Goff said, supposedly, that he received a strange visit in the middle of the night from what was purported to be a definitive extraterrestrial visitor. The visitor proceeded to pump Goff's arm full of mind-expanding chemicals. Could it have been a real abduction, or could it have been our own government, LA, MK Ultra? with my control? Well, I mean, that's a good question. Um, for example, this is interesting because um, in the um, 
L. Ron Hubbard file, the FBI's L. Ron Hubbard file, which has now been declassified, he also complained to the FBI in the early 50s that somebody had broken into his house in the middle of the night and injected him with chemicals. And Paul Benowitz said exactly the same. He said aliens broke into his house and injected him with chemicals. And this... It almost sounds like the same scenario, and you have to wonder, given the time frame with early research into chemical mind stimulation and things like that, if this wasn't some sort of faked you know, UFO or alien event provoked out of the early work of something like MKUltra, kind of you know, creating a staged UFO event, or for whatever obscure reasons, we don't really know. But I mean, it is interesting that Hubbard got injected with something, and then of course, you know, he went on this whole thing with Scientology, which has major alien connections to the story. And we just did a show on Scientology a few uh, days ago. So anybody wants to listen, it's the whole story behind the glitter, beyond the cult. But anyway, let me just read this paragraph here from Goff. Quote, during the past few years, the flying saucer scare has rapidly become one of the main issues used by organizations working for a one world government to frighten people into the belief that we will need a super world government to cope with an invasion from another planet. Many means are being used to create a vast amount of imagination in the minds of the general public concerning the possibilities of an invasion by strange creatures from Mars or Venus. This guy was onto something or he was crazy? Well, I don't think he was crazy. Uh, I, I don't think there's any doubt he was eccentric, yeah. but he wasn't crazy. Um, but, where, you know, if you just read those words... They look like they sound, or they sound like something straight out of what people are talking about today. Orson Welles, um, and and when he, you know, when he kind of combines it with his own specific references to quote a one world government, then you know I, I do think he was onto something. I think the big mystery, the biggest mystery of all, is how he got his information and who he got it from. If we knew that, I think we would be. You know, that that would really open it up to a, a different level. But all we know is that somehow this ob- slightly obscure guy who went on a rant about communism suddenly, a few years after that, began talking about the entire UFO phenomenon, but nothing, not at all from a UFO slash alien angle, totally from the idea that it was all manufactured. And this man, Elwin Hubbard, science fiction writer overnight, creates boom, a religion. What was the connection between Goff and, and, and Scientology and L. Ron Hubbard? Well, yeah, this, <laughs> this kind of gets into really weird stuff because in the mid-1950s, uh, the Church of Scientology, they put out um, like a pamphlet called Brainwashing, and the subtitle was something like, I think it was a synthesis on Russian psychopolitics, something like that. Yeah. Um, now, it was reportedly, at least, the work of um, a man named uh, Leventi Beria, who at one point in the Second World War was the chief of the uh, Russian security police and the secret police, essentially, what's called the NKVD. Uh, this was under Stalin at the time. Um, but there have been other stories that L. Rod Hubbard was actually the person who wrote this particular brainwashing document. But even more bizarre is a number of people who claim that none other than Kenneth Goff wrote the whole thing. Um, 
And so we're not really sure if, you know, it was originally written by Barrier or if Hubbard amended it and then it, maybe it was edited later on for clarity by Goff. But somehow all three men um, have been tied to this particular publication. And again, you know, it, it links... Um, Goff to Hubbard, and of course, as I said, Scientology is heavily alien-dominated in terms of its beliefs and, and structures and so on. So I think somewhere that somewhere at least there's a huge amount of material and history on Goff that's just become lost to the fog of time, if you like. And whether we'll ever get it, I don't know. But I mean, he was certainly one of the most fascinating and unacknowledged people, I think, in ufology in the 1950s. I have to say, I'm embarrassed to say it. I hadn't heard of Goff before, so I'm glad that I read your book and you're telling me about it. And I hope that when they declassify Hubbard's information, that maybe we'll get a glimpse of the connection that they both had. But now, moving forward to, and we have to take our, our one and only intermission shortly, but Marilyn Monroe, what do you think she learned from JFK and maybe even the brother about UFOs? And do you think this is why her red diary is, quote unquote, missing? Well, yeah, this is sort of an even more bizarre story, the idea that Marilyn Monroe was linked to the UFO phenomenon and possibly even that it was somehow connected to her death in 1962. Now, the things we know for sure is that uh, Marilyn Monroe was watched quite heavily by the FBI in the 50s and 60s, uh, well, up to the point of her death in 62. And some of the FBI's documents are now available for viewing on the FBI's website, The Vault. I think, from memory, I think there's like about 130, 150 pages, something like that. And it tells a fascinating story. You know, she's often portrayed as this sort of dumb blonde, but she was actually very learned on world politics. And in 1955, she applied for a visa to visit the Soviet Union because she wanted to see what it was really like. And, of course, this caught the attention of J. Edgar Hoover. And as far as we can tell, it was round about that point when the file was first opened on her. And a lot of the early documents were shared with the CIA as well, which is evidence from the uh, from the documents that are now in the public domain. You can see where they were sent to the CIA. Um, and, of course, the surveillance continued to a greater degree when she had affairs with both President Kennedy and his brother, the Attorney General Robert Kennedy. Now, in the mid-1990s, a highly controversial document surfaced by a man named Milo Spiriglio. And Spiriglio was a California-based private detective who'd written three books about Marilyn Monroe's death, uh, all concluding that she basically was murdered or was allowed to die, and that various intelligence agencies and high-profile people, including the Kennedys, were somehow involved, even if just on sort of the peripheries of the of the story. Um, and each book kind of updated the other on, on what he'd found out. Now, in the mid-1990s, um, Spriglio said that he'd acquired this so-called leaked document. And it was purportedly a CIA document dated just a couple of days after uh, Marilyn Monroe's death in August 1962. And it was supposedly a wiretap of a conversation or a series of conversations between various people, one of them being Marilyn Monroe, one well-known um, uh, journalist at the time, Dorothy Kilgallen, and another man named Howard Rothberg, who was known to Kilgallen uh, to, and also to Marilyn Monroe. And um, 
the the story was that Marilyn Monroe, right up until the, the day she died, was supposedly on the verge of revealing to the media what she knew uh, about various U.S. government secrets that the Kennedy brothers had told her, essentially, you know, to try and impress her into the bedroom, so to speak. And um, she threatened that after they dumped her, she was going to go public because, as I said, she was a very learned person. And what a lot of people didn't know was that she kept something that she called her red diary. She kept a lot of diaries of just recorded day-to-day activities. But this red diary was filled with all the stuff that the Kennedy brothers told her and also different things she got from Hollywood Scoop on different scandal and things like this. So in other words, it was a a document or a a book, if you like, that filled with a lot of potentially damaging information. And according to this CIA document of this uh, transcript of these various phone calls, one of the things that Marilyn Monroe threatened to go public with was what she said was a story that JFK told her about his trip to a, what was described in the document as a secret Air Force base. But that was her, they were paraphrasing her words. This wasn't the sort of the CIA words, it was Marilyn Monroe's words, to see what was described as dead bodies and things from outer space. That's how it words. It actually doesn't talk about extraterrestrial bodies or aliens or UFOs anywhere. It just says a crashed spacecraft and dead bodies. Um, and it also mentions at the top something called Project Moondust. And Project Moondust was a real project that existed back then, but it was largely designed to recover Soviet spacecraft and space satellites and that kind of thing. Um, so, in other words, although a lot of people have said, oh, the document talks about Marilyn Monroe and dead aliens and Roswell, actually doesn't. It doesn't even mention the word alien or UFO in the document. It, as I said, it talks about a, a spacecraft and dead bodies. And of course, with the link to Moondust, you could make an argument that the president was taken to see a recovered early manned Soviet space flight that went wrong and that was never acknowledged. But equally, it could be in relation to UFOs. And the reference to like a secret Air Force base kind of sounds a little bit like Area 51 before it was known as that. So the document's interesting, but the problem is like a lot of, you know, leaked papers, it's difficult to know if it's real or not because we don't have the original document. We have like a, a photocopy of a photocopy of a photocopy. So, um, but it, there's no doubt that um, this red diary um, of Marilyn Monroe's existed and um, it was acknowledged to have entered the coroner's office when she, uh, when she was autopsied after her death. It was actually shown to have been um, recorded in the books showing that it was taken in amongst her possessions. But like so many other files we've already talked about, it vanished from the coroner's office in 62 and 52 years later it's still not resurfaced. And I think obviously she showed some naivete when... It says right here, subject repeatedly called the attorney general and complained about the way she was being ignored by president, the president, his brother. She threatened to hold a press conference and would tell all. She made reference to bases in Cuba and knew of president's plan to kill Castro and made reference to her diary of secrets and what the newspapers would do with such disclosures. Gosh, if that didn't get her killed, I don't know what else could, uh, Nick. Well, yeah, I mean, that's the thing. I mean... You know, most of us who do research, like with me, I I use the Freedom of Information Act to, you know, to legally get hold of documents that can be declassified. But when you're talking about somebody who has got inside information that could potentially change the world overnight, then the stakes are very much higher, you know, and the, and the person's safety, I think, really becomes a, a central issue. 
speaking of L. Ron Hubbard, if they even have a policy, what they call fair game, when they could actually kill somebody to preserve the integrity of the church, imagine what the government can do. But let's discuss so much more when we come back. How can people buy For Nobody's Eyes Only and all the rest of your books, Nick? Um, well, people can get um, the books online, whether it's Amazon or Barnes & Noble's website or any other good online book site as well. Uh, or people can go into uh, Barnes & Noble stores and, and get them off the shelves as well. They're sort of widely available in most Barnes & Nobles. Great, folks. Don't go anywhere. I'm here with my special guest, Nick Redfern, for Nobody's Eyes Only. Huge title. Great information. Missing government files and hidden archives that document the truth behind the most enduring conspiracy theories. This is Mel Fabregas. You're listening to Veritas. And we'll be right back. Don't go anywhere. Thank you for listening to the first segment of this very important interview. To listen to the rest, go to VeritasRadio.com and subscribe. You will receive your login immediately. We'll take a short intermission, listen to some music, and we'll be right back. Enjoy.
This is Nick Redfern, and you're listening to The Veritas Show.